The Incomparable Number 569 June 2021 Welcome back everybody to The Incomparable. I'm your host Jason Snell. This is one of those very special episodes where we talk to uh, a panelist in The Incomparable family on the uh, release of a book that they wrote. That's right. We are here to talk with Helene Wecker about The Hidden Palace, which is released June 8th, 2021. Helene, welcome back to your own little private incomparable episode. Well, thank you so much for having me on. Now, a little origin story to get started. We uh, So you wrote a, a novel called The Gollum and the Genie, in, and it was published in 2013. Yes, I did. So um, we covered it on episode 196, more than 350 episodes <laughs> ago in 2014 when it was nominated for a Hugo Award? Is that Nebula. Right? Nebula Award. I see it. Who could tell? <laughs> the Nebula's... <laughs> Aline, the Nebula shortlists are better. Uh, sorry, did I say that out loud? <laughs> Have I really been reading I... both shortlists that long? Wow. Wow. I, I am not going to have an opinion about that on either way. No, you, all awards are great, right? Yes. I'm just yes. I'm just saying that in terms of the 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 shortlist, I I've I've come to appreciate the Nebula shortlist. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, I think I think it's maybe a more solid list. But either way, you were nominated for a major award, and we read all those books. So we read your book, and we didn't know who you were, and we said nice things about your book, and then discovered that you were listening to us. I was. I was in my kitchen listening to you uh, as I was making dinner, and. I think I was just sort of standing there with my knife and my, you know, I think it was, I swear to God, I was making steak and I was like trimming steak or something. And I'm like, oh, they're talking about my book and they liked my book. And it was like, you have that relationship with podcasters where it's completely one-sided and you know, it's completely one-sided. And then they start talking about you. And it was just so, it was, it was one of the best things about having published a book and, and being out there in the world was that it sort of um, that people who I liked and respected and, you know, appreciated their work were suddenly talking about my work as well. And it gave me an opportunity to sort of text you or email you or DM you on, on Twitter or whatever and, and be like, uh, hi, I, I thank you for being, for, for reading my book and, and thank you for talking about it. And, and, and you and Scott and can, can, can I meet you? And you said yes, and then yeah, we went like, to Ike sandwiches. Oh God, we did. That's we did. right. We did. I probably went to the Container Store afterwards because that's all I always do when I go to Ike's in yeah. Walnut, in Walnut, Walnut Creek. Creek. What else is there yep. to do in Walnut Creek? You exactly. Go you go shopping. Exactly. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, and then that that was that, and then I like I I don't know how many panels I've been on now. The first one was was Zardoz, I think. Oh um, wow! Well, I'm sorry. <laughs> Yeah, no, that was it was a memorable entrance, um, but it's just been a wonderful thing that that you've sort of invited me into your community, and I've I've made a lot of uh, you know online and in real life friends uh, sort of through that, and it, I feel like it's one of the best gifts that the book gave me. Sixteen appearances, by the way. Uh, oh, sixteen, according to the the incomparable uh, ledger the. The, the encyclopedia of 
in Comparable. So it's, yeah, quite a bit. That it, including random track was, and yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Sure. It's more than I uh, was expecting, but fewer than I would like to do. I wish, I wish be I on, could do more. Well, I mean, you got you have kids, and that yeah. is that is definitely uh, limiting in terms of scheduling. <laughs> um, it's it's that's that's life. That's how it happens. No, it was very. It was also really funny because you know we to find out that the the author of the book was listening to what, us talk about it. There's always that moment of like, oh, uh, I hope we didn't say anything terrible. Because, you know, some books we don't like. Yep. <laughs> and I, you know, uh, that's awkward. So uh, yes. it was nice that I was so happy that you listened and that we liked your book. I was relieved. And I'm like, oh, it's one of the good ones. Oh. If you had thoroughly panned it, I probably, I would still listen, but I might not have like gotten in touch because like you said, that would oh, be awkward. Super. Uh, yeah. I imagine that there's somebody whose book we panned who's out there like, oh, I listen faithfully, but now <laughs> I can never speak to them because they didn't like my book. Snow! Um, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, uh, so we didn't know you, you heard us talk about you. It was great. It was great. Uh, that you had a really, it seems from the outside, uh, kind of an amazing experience. It was your debut novel. You got mm -hmm. a major publisher to publish it, which is nice, nice going there. You got award nominations. How was that? Like for a first novel, you had a real, um, dramatic interesting and i would think mostly positive experience uh, as a part of that process and that isn't always the case with first-time novelists it was it was very positive um the response that i i got from uh from readers from booksellers from the industry it was all very very positive and also completely terrifying mm. um, because now the bar was set. Um, but it was, it really was wonderful and I couldn't have asked for a better response. And I, I feel like I lucked out in a number of ways in that I did get the agent that I did who had the relationship with the various editors at the um you know at the the, the top 5 uh publishers who might be interested in the book that that I was writing and he sort of had me in his back pocket for a while as he was maneuvering around and then it went to um it actually went to auction uh when my book was ready to be sold and th at that point uh, you know, a number of people were interested. And so, and, and that builds buzz. And so it, it, it was sort of, it really was the, the fairy tale in a number of ways. And I know that I was very well set up from the beginning, which is something that um, a lot of writers don't get. And there are books that are just as good as mine or better that don't get the industry um, attention. And so I know that, you know, I, I wrote a good book, but I was also very lucky and privileged to get the response that I did. Yeah, when you know, I'm reading it on a Kindle. It's just another book, but then you know, afterward, um, like yeah, th there is this. It's like, oh no, wait a second. This is a <laughs> this is a major publisher, and it's <laughs> like it, it was definitely. I, I don't and I don't know how that industry works and chooses what it chooses that it thinks is going to be a good a good seller it's an interesting genre that your book is in i would imagine that it's actually a pretty strong pitch the the original book the column and the genie that it, it's this it's historical but it's also fantasy and it's it's a an it's 
it's all the stuff that I, I I'm sure I talked about this in episode 196. It's all the stuff that I like from science fiction and fantasy, where it's like the layers. So you're telling an immigrant story, but your immigrants are, and, and it's at a period where uh, people were immigrating to New York uh, in the late 19th century. But your immigrants are literally a golem and a genie. So you get that extra. Again, growing up with Star Trek, it's like, oh, I see it. I see the layers and the metaphors that are happening here. <laughs> but that's not. I mean, it is. I, I can see why that would be something that would intrigue a publisher because it's not, you know, it's not something that can be put into a, a really easy bucket. And and honestly, I sometimes wonder if major publishers look at genre fiction and they're like, oh, it's genre, but it's also a more reputable uh, genre like historical or it's got a social commentary aspect because I sometimes feel like major publishers uh, they're not going to be like yep it's a fantasy novel there's swords and stuff they're like no no I I need something I need something a little more uh, yeah. that I could I, I don't know if that makes any sense that I could sell it that it's like a little more reputable or a little bit more like high high class and I'm not I'm just from a marketing perspective sometimes the the the, the raw genre stuff gets looked down on and I see your book and I think well your book is many things at once and I could see how that would that would sell well to uh, to the big publishers well it, it and but you're right at the same time and that like they're I think so, okay, I think if I had tried to write and sell this book maybe 10, 15 years earlier, it would have been a harder sell. Hmm. It would have been more like, okay, well, no, we got to – is this fiction or is it fantasy and is it historical fiction? Right. You could be fiction and, and historical fiction, but right. you can't be fiction, historical fiction, and fantasy. It's too many like, things. It's too many things. And I think that um, – the success of authors like Neil Gaiman and to a certain extent, Michael Shaben and um, a few of, you know, Kelly Link, a number of the writers who'd done sort of genre mashups or, you know, had said, okay, we're, we're just going to knock down that wall, that, you know, completely fabricated wall that exists between, you know, genre and literary. And we're, you know, there, there was a lot in the late 90s, early aughts, um, that pointed to, okay, yes, this can be successful. Yes, people do still like stories about um, things that don't actually exist, and you can uh, tell them in a way that treats them as actual people, and it's not all you know, swords and dragons on the cover, and we can right. actually do something with that and sell that to a a larger market than just like the narrow scope of whatever our you know fantasy oriented house has carved out for itself or whatever. And so I think that I did benefit from that definitely. That, that some of that work had already, a lot of that work had already been done, and then. Um, I think you know, so it made them. Um, it, it made a lot of the publishers who were interested in my book be like, "Oh, okay, no, I I think we can." You Isn't know, that look always at, the look way? At a broad market for this, yeah. That's always the way that nothing succeeds like success. They're like, "Oh, I get it. There's a comp for this. This is yes. like Neil Gaiman, or this is like Jonathan Strange and Mister Norrell, right? Exactly. Which yeah. Is, which is that's uh, that was ten years earlier. That's not a bad comp, right? And that that was a bestseller, and that that's a historical fiction with fantasy mm-hmm. elements that's all kind of put in together. And and I, I'm from the magazine side, I was just going to say that, you know, 
I experienced that where it's like you had a blue cover that did well, and then they would just tell you every month, you should do a blue cover. And it's like, oh. we can't do a blue cover every month, but like once something succeeds, it opens doors, right? And yeah. so so you're right, you had you had that. And and it's funny because there are other books from about the same class, the same year as your book that are are similar, but uh I, I feel like um so I I recommend your book a lot. And the other book that I recommended from this period all the time was The Goblin Emperor. So there's oh, The Golem yeah. and the Genie and The Goblin Emperor. The Goblin Emperor was published by Tor, uh, sort of a traditional genre publisher. And nobody had heard of of The Goblin Emperor. And I, I, I bet The Goblin Emperor was read by a fraction of the people who read <laughs> your book. Um, and it's just one of those things that, like, they're both really great books. But, but I can also see The Goblin Emperor. It's like... It's it's a goblin. It's in a yeah. fantasy world, and it's like it's a little too far, maybe, for that, those same sets of publishers. Um, right. Although she, it's, it's not recognizably uh, us in anything other than the fact that these are actual people who are living right. real lives. So, however, um, the Sarah Manette, I think, wrote that book. Um, she didn't have to do um, historical research. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then one of the things I wanted to ask you about, and and for those who are worried about spoilers, I'll, I'll flag, I'll fire off the spoiler horn when there are spoilers. But like we're going to talk in general about the the premise of these of these books and all of that. And one of them is it's set in the late late eighteen hundreds and and then early nineteen hundreds, and you know there there is a real challenge in the trade off in setting it in the real world is that you have a real world that you either need to blithely ignore all facts about or you need to do research about. And and I assume that you spent a lot of time doing historical research about New York in this period? I spent a lot of time doing research about historical New York, about the events leading up to World War One, about uh, any number of different sub subjects. Uh, Triangle yeah. shirtwaist fire. Triangle... It was one yes. of those moments. It's like a Doctor Who thing, right? Where it's like you can't be in New York in this period and not have something that says, "Here's a very famous thing that happened right there." Exactly, and that was actually kind of hard with this book um, because the years that were that this takes place are so sort of momentous in American history that it started to feel like Forrest Gump at times where it was like, okay, now they're taking, now this is happening. Now this is happening. Ah. Here are all these familiar events. And it, I didn't want to make it just a, you know, a jump from one historical, you know, spectacle to another. But at the same time, yeah, if you're writing about 1911 Lower East Side and you don't mention the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire, that's kind of a big omission. Yeah. Um, and the, the same with, World War One, the same with um I have the, the, the Titanic in there. Right. Um and so it does become like like, oh God, is this this is just sort of a, a movie of, of the early twentieth century. But but no, and I, I did I did try to make it, you know, told through personal stories, not, you know, oh god oh god, here's like the ship going down right. and it's it's you know, you, you can hear D, uh, Celine Dion in the background. I did not want that. You golem, um, plug the hole while the genie <laughs> Exactly. Flies everyone to safety, <laughs> and yes, exactly. Happen. Happen Especially when you've got these, like, basically superpower characters who's like, well, if they're there, why didn't they stop it? Which is <laughs> the, you know, the the uh, Wonder Woman in World War One problem, and and 
you know, where you see her fighting in, in the movie, fighting through uh, the, the the trenches of, right. of France, um, which is, I, I won't go into everything that they did right in that movie. But anyway, um, no, so I had to write very carefully around them. I had to include them, but through the eyes of the characters who are not necessarily the main players of those events. Um, and so that became a very delicate procedure that I had to do a number of times in each instance to get it right. Now, can you do too much research? Did you find yourself at any point thinking like, oh boy, I'm deep, I'm way too deep down into this now and I need to back off? Or was oh it my. always, yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's always another book. There's always mm-hmm. another article. There's always, I mean, you can spend as many days in in the JSTOR depths as you like, you know, reading through various uh, journals and going to interlibrary loan and saying, well, now I, I absolutely have to have this book that's out of print that was written in 1936 by some dude. Um, no, the just the learning about uh, telegrams and... Um, Western Union Messenger Boys right? Uh, for this book was, I mean, th- for every single thing, there's the expert and the expert who has spent their entire career writing about this one thing. And it's now it's like I have to like take the Matrix pill and and absorb, I, I, you know, I know Kung Fu now. Now I know everything there is about, you know, whatever the subject is. And at one point, I, I think I said to myself, well, obviously, in order to write this book correctly, I'm just going to have to go in and get a master's in Jewish studies. And I was actually not kidding to myself. I, I had, and you, you find yourself thinking those things and that's when it's like, okay, now you're too far. Now you're too far down the rabbit hole. You are not going to go get a master's in Jewish studies in order to write this book. You are going to research what you need to know in order to write this book. You are going to hand wave the things that you cannot find in a reasonable amount of time. And anyone who emails you, you can send them a polite email back and say, write your own book next time but yeah it it becomes a an exercise in okay how much is too much I always bite off more than I can chew I did it with the first book I did it with this book there were so many things that I researched that did not make it into this book just because I had too much in this book and I had to cut it back and cut it back and cut it back and the danger so, is that yeah. it ends up reading like a download, right? Like the, the the danger is you want to you want to show your work, and I yeah. I did that. I had a I had a novel draft that I had uh, uh, Saladin Ahmed read, and um, mm-hmm. and uh, and it was great feedback he gave. But the the biggest thing he said was, "You've done a lot of you've got a lot of detail here that's completely unnecessary." And I was like, "Oh yeah, I am showing my work, aren't I? Take it all out." <laughs> and it's like, "But I did all that work." And it's like, "Yeah, but." <laughs> it's not and when the stuff is genuinely interesting right. too like you've got a character you've got a character who is a western union uh telegram boy on a bicycle and i get to you know i get to see it when i'm reading the book like some of the mechanics of that but you know that that is like you said earlier it's character driven like these are these are nice bits of of detail and seasoning about that character that serve what the book is trying to do uh, so it, it feels natural in a way that I think the stuff that you want to cut is the stuff that maybe doesn't feel natural or isn't as important, even though it's interesting. 
or is just so too obvious. Like I had just like what what uh, Saladin said to you. I had a, a first draft, uh, an earlier draft of of uh, the first book that my edit my um, agent wrote back to me and said, "Okay, this is reading like a walking tour of mm. Lower Manhattan, and <laughs> your your readers are not tourists. They they are not there to see the sights. They are there to learn about your characters and you know." Learn to find the telling detail. Basically, was was what he reminded oh, me. Oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah, and and so that's what I always try to remember is what is what is the telling detail? What is the one detail? Take there are three details in the sentence. Pick one. Pick the one that matters the most. <laughs> that's a good. That's a good rule of thumb. If if your yeah. sentence has three details in it, it maybe has two too many. <laughs> it's got two too many. At least two too many. Well, um. So obviously. Uh, there was, in in terms of time, a big gap between the publishing of these two books, and I wanted yep. to talk to you a little bit about like I don't want to say what happened, Helene. What happened? <laughs> but uh, you know, I know you've got young kids. Um, were you pregnant when the book came out? Is that is that right? No, I had a one year old when a, the first book a, came out. Oh boy. So, I, yes. <laughs> so so I, I I just wanted to ask, what were the roadblocks? What did life put? in front of you between so, you and your your second novel oh my gosh uh right so i the the timeline went sort of like this i had the book half written when i sold it um and the first book mm-hmm. and uh we had also been trying for a number of years to have a baby and i sold the book and got pregnant within a month of <laughs> congratulate mazel tov yes it's a, what a blessing. Oh, no. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a heck of a ride. Uh. And when uh, I turned the book in, the, the baby actually beat the book. She came, maybe it wasn't within one month of each other. It was like, but it was incredibly close. And the, the, the two deadlines, I literally had two deadlines that were within a week of each other. And uh, the baby came early. She was the one I couldn't do anything about. Um and then I finished the book and then uh, taking care of a newborn. I don't remember much of that. No. And <laughs> and then went through sort of the pre-publication process as a new mom. The book came out. I had a one-year-old. Um, the, the reception was fantastic. I was doing all, you know, all of the sort of publicity stuff, the tour stuff, uh, with a baby. Um, Kareem, my husband was fantastic about take, you know, being the one at home with the baby. Sometimes I brought the baby with me. Sometimes it was like, okay, you've got some readings in, uh, San Diego. Well, we're having a family trip. We're all going to fly down and, and, you know, spend the weekend in San Diego and I'll do a couple of readings and, you know, meet them back at the hotel and, or, you know, whatnot. Um, went through all of that uh, and toward the end of the you know sort of book tour the, it, it it stretched for a while because book groups were discovering it um, there was there's a fantastic organization called the Jewish Book Council that I became one of the uh, writers sort of in their stable of like here's some books that we think would be good for your book group and we can fly the author out if you're you know you just have to be sort of part of our organization be registered with us and and we can send an author out to you and so I was flying around hither and yon um in the middle of this found out I was pregnant again um found out by fainting on stage which was really fun um (laughs) and uh so I at that point 
I had been starting to think about the next book. And this was, must have been the end of 2013, beginning of 2014. And I, at this point, I'm staring at having a very energetic one-year-old and who will be like two and a half when the baby is born and having a newborn, remembering what being, you know, a parent of a newborn was like. And my brain said, just write a sequel. And because surely that will be easier than starting from scratch. Um, at that point, and I'd had some ideas. What what happened was when you're doing all the research for something that's set far enough back, like 100 years or so, the, the research tends to come in a, a time clump where here is a book about New York, but it's not exactly the year that you want. It's, right. it's you know, a 20, 25-year window, maybe more. So as I was researching all of this stuff, I was finding a lot of interesting material about a time, you know, a slightly later time period than, than what my book was set in. And I had to sort of put that aside, but it was giving me ideas. So I had like this file that I would just sort of toss things in um, and say, well, wouldn't it be interesting um, if uh, Chava the Golem got interested in the women's suffrage movement? Wouldn't it be, you know, here's what was going on in little Syria uh, during World War One, the early years when basically Lebanon was getting starved out because because um, the uh, the um, uh, the rulers of, of Lebanon were, were basically diverting all of the available food to the imperial army at the front, and so right. the the Lebanese villages were basically left to starve, and everyone in uh, little Syria who had you know basically just. It was like this giant crisis and it was this humanitarian crisis that it was difficult to get the rest of the world to really pay attention to and do anything about. And meanwhile, you know, they're in America getting fed, earning money and waiting for you know letters from home about, you know, whether their families are OK. And so all of this was just sort of sitting in a file. And I was like, oh, well, I'll just do that. I will just write the next story. I don't feel like these characters are done. They've learned a little, but they haven't learned a ton of stuff. So we're just going to, you know, do the, the, the continuing saga of, of the golem and the genie. And I thought it would take me about two years to write. And it did not. It <laughs> took seven, is it seven years? I think it's seven years at this point. I've lost track. Um, it's the same. It's basically the same amount of time that the first book um, took. And the the difference being sort of where are you in your life now? When I wrote the majority of the first book, the majority of the time I spent writing the first book was not under contract. I was... I had no writing credits to my name. I had uh, an MFA, but that was it. Basically, I was working a bunch of weird little jobs in order to support what people were, you know, would refer to as my writing habit or whatever. Mm. Um, that I was, you know, I was basically trying to prove myself by putting so many eggs in this basket that I could not, you know, that I had to make it succeed. Um, or I would just, I, I couldn't just put it in a drawer and be done with it. I had too much of like my self-worth and, and, and my time wrapped up in it. Um, I was going to write this book, damn it, if it took me forever to do it. And then it worked and it succeeded. And now here I am with a contract for the next book. 
and two kids and a house and a writing career that I now must maintain. And, it, you know, not to complain, not to complain, because this was everything that I wanted. But it also does come with its own set of obstacles and obligations. And so now I had to figure out, and I'm still in the process of figuring out, mind you, how to be a writer and a parent and a person in the world and all of this um, sort of all wrapped up and keeping track of many elements of my life at the same time. Whereas before, what would happen was Kareem would leave in the morning and I would be, you know, sitting on the couch with a cat in my lap and my laptop writing um, and in my bathrobe. And he would come home from work and I would be on the couch in my bathrobe writing with a cat in my lap and he would say you you did get up off the couch today right and I would say yes I did get up off the couch and I went to the bathroom and I did a load of laundry and I ate some lunch and that good okay there was I've talked about this before but there was a um a week toward the end of that writing process when I left my car at a bark station for five days without realizing it um, because I'd gone into town for something and then gotten a ride back with someone else and completely forgotten that I had left my car at this <laughs> bark station. Your car. I had misplaced my car <laughs> and did not realize it until five days later when I finally left the, appo- the apartment and went to the parking lot and was like, where the hell is my car? And then only then realized what I had done. There is no conceivable way that I could leave my car somewhere for more than a day at this point in my life, um, even during the pandemic, I think, right. um, with, without, you know, cause I am taking the kids places. I am doing this. I am doing that. I am, I am, you know, doing everything that needs to be done. And at the same time, I am writing these books that really do require a lot of alone time. And, you know, just, I wish I could, sometimes I wish I could crawl in a cave and just sit there and be, you know, in the research and in the scene and in in these characters' lives, and there are times, and there and you know, and that's one thing side of it. And on the other side of it, there are times when I'm like, "What am I doing with these people who don't exist?" When I've got you know a family that needs attention, um, so I tend to swing wildly from side to side. And one thing that is sort of incumbent upon me now that this book is 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 done and out is that I need to learn how to balance it and write things that don't require crawling off in a cave for six months, you know, before before it really gels and then I can write about it. I was going to say that there's no cave in the book, but there is a cave in the book, so research. <laughs> um, the, uh, yeah, I mean, life and finding work-life balance is something that everybody, especially people who work at home, especially people who work at home and have kids... Uh, struggle with what you know how was so you said a few things there I mean obviously you've got young kids I mean I, I think anybody who's had had kids is going to say yes that is going to make it really hard to mm-hmm. to do uh, to do your job because you've got little kids and little kids take a lot of energy and uh, you know and, and, and it it's hard to get a deep focus because even if you can set them up. They reach an age where they're sort of self-directed. They're not self-directed for long stretches of time. So it's hard to get deep down in something because then you're, yep. they, they bring you right back out. So, but I, something else you said that I thought was interesting is, you know, you chose to write, do a sequel because you thought it would be easier. Mm-hmm. Was, was part of it 
that it wasn't easier as, as it oh. turns out does that I mean like was part of it that that choice which seemed to be the right choice I, I guess what I'm saying is uh, is the choice to write a sequel the only reason that this book is here now or or is it or it was it actually part of the contributing factor that it turned out to be more difficult rather than easier um yeah gosh that's a really good question no I I know that it turned out to be harder than I thought it was going to be um to write a sequel especially in a world as complex as I had set up right um where there's very little wiggle room there were so many times when I was I just wish I could go back and change something in the first book right it's canon it's it's canon I can't nope it's out there (laughs) it's literally in paper you can't do that no and you know I've read books where the, the, you know Dan the, has a wiki now. <laughs> oh my gosh! Because he doesn't want to contradict himself. <laughs> I just recently listened to that episode again, um, it, and I was like, I need a wiki. I got to that point, and I was like, I just need a wiki. That's what I've been missing this whole time. <laughs> solved. Problem solved. Oh, my God. And, you know, of course, that then that's your procrastination technique is building right. the wiki for the book instead of writing because, the book. I mean, the, because the problem is um, your audience remembers your book and your world way better than you do. This yeah. is always the case, right? Yep. This is This is why... George R. R. Martin has uh, like a team of people. This is why Lost had the guy who knew all the lore of Lost. This is why this always happens is because because the writers, you know, you write it. And I mean, people talk to me about D&D that we've played or podcasts that I've recorded uh, for, for The Incomparable. And they'll be like, oh, it's like this thing when you said that thing. And I'll be like, I have no memory of that at all. <laughs> the, the, the who and the what? <laughs> but I don't have to generally be like super consistent with that stuff. Uh, but you know, you're writing a direct sequel to your successful novel. You, you can't get it wrong. And it's like, it's really hard because you will be held to account. Now, some people won't remember at all. You got a, you got a review for the new book that, that (laughs) makes an assumption about something that happened between the novels that literally happens in the first novel. Yes. That that reviewer, uh, if they read that first novel, they, they didn't remember that part, but I think other people will hold you to it and they'll be like, but, but Helene, you said that the genie (laughs) couldn't do this. And you'd be like, did I? So so you got to remain internally consistent. I I would imagine that that is uh, a frustration. It is incredibly frustrating. It's it's remaining internally consistent to the characters while also uh, staying within the timeline of observed history Mm -hmm. and, you know, a certain city that, you know, I have to get the characters from here to there and it has to happen in 20 minutes. Well, that's impossible. Well, okay, but now I have to move this scene. Well, where are you going to move it to? I'm going to move it to this other place. Well, how did they get there? And it just, it just sort of fractally goes out from there um, where any one change, especially in something like towards the end of the book, things get decently tightly paced. Um, and any change is going to have to, you know, knock on the change both before it and after it. Um, so it's like it's like constructing a house of cards in the air and trying to swap cards out in, you know, in the middle of, of you know, building it. Um, and some of the cards can't be moved because you and placed some of them the car- eight years ago. <laughs> 
Exactly. And it's like, okay, which of these are structural and which of these are like a wing that I can sort of dismantle and put back together in a slightly different place. But aside from like the plot and continuity and established events, there's also the question of the characters and how much can the characters change? Because I write the kind of books where the characters need to change. They have to have learned and changed. There has to be some growth between the end of the book, between the start of the book and the end of the book. Um, or at least that's, you know, that's what I look for in a book. Yeah, so absolutely. I, I, I want that to have happened. And there's, so the question also became, okay, what will they learn? What, how will they change? What are the stakes emotionally for these characters and how can I turn that into a a narrative arc how can I turn it into something compelling and when I started so at the end of the golem and the genie um our two main characters Hava the golem and Ahmad the genie um they have gone through a lot they have learned and grown and changed and now they are going to attempt to start it is hinted strongly a relationship uh-huh. together um they're going to get together and become a couple and what is that going to look like for two characters who are so diametrically opposed to each other in temperament um who have who the thing that is keeping them together is this experience the shared experience of being an otherworldly uh, a supernatural immigrant in New York having to pass as human um, and all of the struggles and discomforts and difficulties that come along with that. That is what they share, but they come at it from two completely different angles because of their natures, because of the, because right. she is so driven to help others and he is such an iconoclast. Um, and so I was like, well, there it is. That's the tension. That's what's, you know, they're going to have to learn how to be together and how to, you know, and is that going to work? And is it not going to work? And, and, and you know, what, what sort of sparks are going to fly? And I started it with that as the central tension. And it was just, it was like a bad teen comedy from the 80s shoved inside a period drama. Hmm that it was all just sniping and oh he he doesn't really like me and she thinks she's better than me and and it was and that was it wasn't enough that it, was the moment that you decided they needed to form a detective agency right that right then that was the moment right, exactly might as well just that make was, this oh, a, God. a detective novel at this point we're, the, 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 there was <laughs> we're gonna keep this the, going well so you you said uh, uh before we started uh when we were talking about this uh in advance that um one of the you know, that you you didn't expect it to be this direct a sequel. So one of the decisions that you made is I'm gonna you know you had an ending, a nice ending to the Golem and the Genie, and it's right. It's it's a happy ending, and there's the promise of what's to come. But you reader get to fill in the blanks. The end, and now mm-hmm. you have to take that and be like, well, but <laughs> and and yeah. go for it. And and one of the things that that struck me in reading the novel was that I was surprised at how much it's a direct continuation that you it it really is sort of like the novel just continues from the previous novel in a way that I don't know what I was expecting um I I guess I was sort of expecting that it would be a, a little more oblique where there'd be like oh you meet uh, there's a character uh, who was in the first book everybody but we see again who is who's Sophia Winston and I I I was thinking after I read it like I could see a version of this novel where like 
she's having her adventures and something happens and the only people who could solve it are the Gollum and the genie, that kind of thing. Yes. And then they, they come in and you're like, oh, it's those characters we remembered. But in the end, uh, the Hidden Palace doesn't doesn't go like that. There are new characters in it. And I want to talk to you about that in a little bit. But like it is... It is ultimately, I mean, I know you had to make changes and that you had to struggle with this, but like, I think it's really interesting that, that this book basically says, oh yeah, it's, it's, it's those people, you know, and here's what happened next. Like very directly, here's literally, here's what happened. There's a little time jump, but not a lot. I did not want to write it like that. I really didn't. Um, not not because I felt like there was something wrong with that, but that, like you said, that just wasn't how I had envisioned it. Um, and so I wanted to start it as like a cold open right. three or four, five years later, um, maybe even more than that, I think, originally, and have it be um, like something terrible. Something has happened. Something is going to open in the middle of a crisis. And with with our main characters, with Havan Ahmad, but it will, as the crisis like unfolds, there will be like backstory filled in of what happened in the years in between. And the problem that I ran into was the backstory started taking over uh-huh. because I had to account for all the details. And so it became um, just this overweighted scaffolding of here is here is the, the the current story that we're telling that is like stick thin and here's everything that we are hanging off of it which is the actual meat of the story right. and it just and I kept having to go back and write more and write more and then finally I, th- I don't remember how many like versions I as, so I, I should step back and, and explain my writing process as how yes. it worked for both I, of these I was books. going to ask so yes please so the way that I write these, which is the worst way to write a book ever, and no one should do this if at all possible, is I start at the beginning and I get a little bit of the way in. And I realize that something is wrong. I've had to, I have to change something and it's going to affect everything. And so now I go back to the beginning with that thing that I've changed. And I write more and I get a little farther in. And then I have a part where I branch where there's, okay, I can make this happen or I can make this happen. Well, let's try this way. So I go off down that road for a bit. Oh, no, that's getting us somewhere weird. Oh, but here's this interesting piece of research. Can I go back to where I started and go down that other path? Uh, you know, go back to the path, go t- take the other option, but incorporate this research somehow. Huh, let's see if I can do that. So I incorporate the research and I go in and, oh, no, now something's bad. And I have to go back all the way to the beginning again because this research didn't account for this other thing. And so it just incrementally lays down these layers of the novel, some of which I can lift out and some of which get tied in without me really realizing it. And I keep going back and I keep adding more. And it's like, it's almost like a lacquering. It's like you build up and embed things into it. And that sort of forms a pattern. And then you've got to continue the pattern. At some point, you've got stuff that's just anchored in too deeply that it can't be changed unless you are willing to just totally dismantle the whole thing, which I did more than once. Um, 
at one point I, I, like I said, I think I said earlier, I, I bit off more than I could chew. I had so much plot in this book that I had gotten maybe 20 or 30,000 words into what is supposed to be a 125,000 word book. It might've actually been more than that. It might've been like 40,000 words into the book. And I hadn't introduced all the main characters yet. <laughs> And like, it, it wasn't just like, you know, a character drops in halfway through the book. It was, no, this is part of like, what's getting the plot off the ground is this character and he isn't even there yet. And at that point I realized, no, this is just too much. And I lifted, I, I basically, Kareem described it as, you sort of ripped the spine out of your book. I was like, yes, that is exactly what I did. I took a central plot that had been, um sort of tying everything together and I just ripped that sucker straight out and then and put it aside and like I'll deal with you in the future you are going to be something that I write about in you know then for the next book or whatever and then I had to figure out what was going to connect everything together again and I invented actually um one of the characters Toby the uh Toby the um Western Union Messenger Boy on a bicycle. The Western Union Messenger Boy, exactly, wasn't going to be in the book. He was. He and his mom had left New York in an earlier draft of the book, and so I brought. He's like, we're bringing Toby back. Toby's going to be the one who ties everything together. It's not going to be this other giant plot machination that that would require its own book to take care of. So now, what do I have? I have these pieces. I have an arm. I have a leg. I have you know a you know a left torso. I have a few things that I need to tie together. How how do I tie that together? We're going to go back and we're going to sew everything back together from the beginning. Oh, and here's this other research. And it's a crazy, crazy process. I have had people ask me if I, so how do you organize your book? Are you a plotter or a pantser? I'm like, I don't know. Mm. I don't know what I am at this point. I do plot. I have, I, I don't just, I, I know writers who literally do start at the beginning and just write and they don't plan anything. And then they get to the end and they're like, huh, what do I have here? Well, I'll keep keep this part and keep that part and and go back and write a book around those. I don't think I I would ever be able to do that. But on the other hand, I don't draw like I know Anthony does. Um, uh, draw up a, a meticulous outline and then follow every single beat right. of it. Um, I I do something in the middle and I work with the book that I currently have and I draw up. Uh, you know, diagrams or, uh, you know, flow charts or mind maps or whatever that, you know, will ostensibly plot me through to the end. But I always know that something's going to change. Something's going to break and I'm going to have to go back and fix whatever it is. Well, um, it sounds like you're, you're so willing to drive into some undis undiscovered territory and and write and see what happens, knowing that you may need to back out of there. And and I know some writers don't like their entire structure is built on not doing that. And some writers, their entire mm -hmm. structure is built on doing that, which is just you're writing and let's see what happens here. And it sounds like you are somebody who's happy to kind of like drive into those regions and write those words. And but rather than sort of uh, seeing where it leads you, you may stop at some point and go, wait a second <laughs> and, yeah. and revisit it, which is, uh, yeah, it's in between, I would say. Yeah, it's 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 like if it takes me totally off the map, then I'm like, OK, no, something something went wrong and I have to go back. But yeah, it is sort of like the best and worst of both worlds in that it drives me up the wall. Um, it makes me a hard person to live with sometimes. It makes me miss deadlines, but it also leads to some fascinating places. 
Um, and it can take a while, I think, sometimes to figure out what it is that you're really writing about in the same way that I'm writing in the same way that like when a couple has an argument, it's not about what they're arguing about, right? It's about the thing beneath it. And I think sometimes, you know, I, I write, I write books that are apparently that are very philosophy based that are about, okay, how, how it is, what it means to be human um, from the perspective of people who are on the edge of humanity um, and what it is that, how it is that you can enact your humanity um, in a way that allows you to be a free person, but also tied to a community. And these are like big chewy questions that I don't, you know, I certainly don't have the answers to. I have varying perspectives on them. Um, But it it takes a while to really get into the heart of that and to find, uh, to find your doorway, to find like the, the, the shovel that's shaped correctly, that is going to dig you to, an interesting find that may have that may shed some light on the on the answer. So I'm trying to do many things at once. And and that, you know, just it it takes a while for all of that to really gel. And that is why as as much as um, the kids and the house and the, you know, carpool and the, you know, what are we having for dinner and the kids don't have any clean underwear and all of that. As much as of as that is what took me, uh, made this book take seven years. It's also just <laughs> set out. I, I, I like to, you know, make huge, fantastic problems for myself and then try to solve them. And, and it gets me somewhere that's hopefully interesting to read. Right. But it, it, it's going to frustrate you along the way. And oh, time. Yeah. I, I mean, every time I talk to you about this uh, over the last few years, um, I felt like I saw, I saw optimistic Helene. <laughs> I saw resigned Helene. I saw frustrated <laughs> Helene. And strangely, it's not in the sequence that somebody would think would progress to the release of a novel. It was right. you were optimistic a long time ago. <laughs> yes. And then, and then there was the the sort of like resigned and then there was the frustrated which I think in hindsight I like uh Dan Morin and I had had a sandwich with you. We we always meet in sandwich <laughs> shops in San Jose in 2019 I think. Yeah, that was the nebulous. That must have was that 19? 18. It was either 18 19, or 19. Something like that. Might have, might have been 18. Yeah. And it was uh at that point you seemed to be like in the process of tearing something apart because you're like, "Oh boy. Mm-hmm. I'm, you know, you're frustrated and you're like, "Oh, it's in pieces and I'm putting it back together." And and it was I, I look at that now and I think at least from the outside that that was that was you actually closer to getting the novel done because you were in the process of of ripping things out and putting things back yeah. together. Yep, that might have been the second time I did that. Yeah. It was <laughs> Yeah, and it's I I it's really I I wish it didn't work like this because then people it's like should we ask her how the book is going <laughs> or is she going to get that look on her face like we just kicked her puppy? Like it, it becomes like friends are are sort of hesitant to ask me how my work is going, and that isn't something that I want to happen. I want to be able to, you know, talk about like there are times when I couldn't even talk to Kareem about it. 
I was just so in the, like the swamp of despair mm-hmm. that I he just wouldn't ask me how the day was going because I would just like come to to the table with this glowering like this cloud on my face. Um, and you know, that's, that's no fun. That's no fun to live with. That's no fun to be. Um, so yeah, there is that part of me that's like, can I write the books that I want to write without being a horrible person to be around? It remains to be seen. <laughs> well, we'll find out <laughs> Yeah. Or, or not. I mean, one of those things. Um, yep. I'm going to, I'm going to tread lightly on the spo- spoilers for, uh, for the hidden palace, but um, for those who want to be, who've listened this far and want to be completely untouched, I guess you should tune out at this point. Um, but again, I'm going to c- try to keep it light. I, I, I don't want to mm-hmm. spoil the book for anybody. They should go out and, and buy it. It's available at bookstores everywhere and and on the internet and all of those things. Um, June 8th. But um, one of the things, talking about this being a sequel, you have your main characters. And they are, they're like, there's so many things that are great about your main characters um, you, you're representing different kinds of immigration into America. They are avatars of their kind of the culture because they're, they're mythological creatures from two different cultures. Um, but they are also supernatural creatures living in New York city. And one of the things that you do in the hidden palace that I, I thought was, was good and interesting, but is also sad is the, there is a moment where, uh, where Hava realizes she's got to leave the the job that she has excelled at and that she's not respected for. She's not treated well. She does wonderful things and is not really given any credit for them. But like it's her place in the world. And she realizes somebody notices that she hasn't aged. And she's like, oh, I got to go. <laughs> and it's yeah. I, I thought and something similar happens with Ahmad where um, his partner is getting older and older and and gets sicker and it's like you you get that moment of uh these are immortal or nigh immortal supernatural creatures and uh and the world is passing around them and 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 you in the first book you didn't really have they were new to new to New York you didn't have to grapple with that but in the hidden palace that's part of the story is like you can't just be the lady who bakes bread forever because at some point somebody's going to say oh there's a picture of you you haven't aged and that was 15 years ago and so you you address it directly yeah and that became uh, a big driver of um what i said before about the the undercurrent of uh you know what is it that these people are grappling with and for them it is that they live on such a different scale than everyone around them um that she doesn't age hava doesn't right. age and she just is as she was made and is you know will be that way forever ahmad ages but at in very you know compared to humans in a very very small yeah, he's gonna case, live another he, 600 years or something like that he's yeah. yeah he's he's like close to 200 years or so and he's gonna live another 600 years and so for that for him it's like you know what early 20s and and you know there it just isn't the same scale right. um and so it became a functional question of okay how do i when i realized that the book was going to span the amount of time that it did I realized I couldn't just ignore these problems. Um, if I had told this in more of like a fairy tale style, then I think you could get away a little more with with the sure. the woman who has always been at this one bakery, and you know, no one seems Ev- to notice. Eventually, and... it was her daughter, probably. I guess. Shrug, yes, right? exactly, 
And at some point, if I if I keep going with these stories, I am going to have to pull something like that, where it's like they go away and die and come back as their long lost mm-hmm. child or something. Um, but the so it became okay. How are they going to react to these uh, these crises? And yeah, for for Hava, it was more. Uh, she is very attached to her life that she has built for herself, even though, as you say, she's, you know, she is hidden and, and that means that she doesn't get to really show off what she can do and, and and she doesn't get credit as much as she should for the stuff that she does because she is so good at it that people tend not to notice the effect that she has. Um, but the that she this is like the rhythm that she has built her life up around is working at this bakery. It's, it's like the linchpin of her life. And when she realizes that she has to leave, then everything sort of falls apart for her. And she eventually um, decides that what she's going to do is become a, she's going to go to school and she is going to become a teacher. Uh Um, She's going to teach what is essentially home ec. Um, And, that opens an entirely new world for her and causes her to grow and change in a couple of ways, which set her completely apart from Ahmad, where he, like you said, he has, you know, he has this this life that he too has built up for himself, but he is much more ambivalent about it. And the one uh, person who he is attached to, his partner, um, Arbili, um, has his own crisis where he does get sick and in the book eventually dies. And that rips everything out from under him. But he hasn't been able to adjust the way that Hava did. And so it's like his whole world just sort of comes apart and he decides, that's it. I'm done with all of you. Um, he turns inward and, and sort of just focuses he, on his on his art, essentially. On, yeah, basically, he becomes he be, he becomes the artist in the cave, just 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 working on his own. And uh, he has turned his back on the human world because he has basically decided that he can't uh, he can't deal. He won't he won't uh, be a part of it. And so this drives them apart for a good part of the book. And then the question is, how do you come back from that? Um, and that really, yeah, a lot of the character movement in the book did stem from that, from just this realization of, okay, they're going to need to adjust or not adjust to, you know, the human timescale, um, to the fact that people will grow up and die around them, to the fact that they need to account for that they are not going to age and they have to figure out ways to deal with that. Um, and that became one of the central drivers of the book. At the same time that I had these new characters sort of coming in from the outside and, and changing and throwing things into confusion. Right. Now, that is a, that is something I wanted to talk to you about, too, which is you've got uh, you've got some new characters here that are... Uh, there, there are a bunch of them, but there are two that I, I thought when I realized what you were doing, I was like, oh, this is, oh, I see what she's doing here. There is <laughs> a male golem who is created in the book and a female genie comes to the Jinnea, 
I don't know how Jania, uh, Jania. Uh, that she she comes to New York as well, and so you had this moment of like, oh wait a second, there's more than just the the two, and they're they're kind of their opposite sex pair. So there's this question mm-hmm. of like, what are their relationships with these new characters going to be? And that doesn't go exactly where you expect it, which is nice. I like that. Thank you for that. Uh, but uh, but it is an extra twist. But we, along with those characters, we get the characters who sort of bring them uh, into the story, which is uh, Kreindel Altschul, whose father is an obsessed rabbi who is, he's making a golem, people. What do you think is going to mm-hmm. happen? Uh, and, and, uh, and then Sophia, who we met in the first book, uh, who is has a brief affair with Ahmad and ends up sort of cold all the time, and so she goes, she goes on adventures in the in the Middle East uh, and learns about culture and ends up uh, bringing the Jania back to to New York, and so we get those we get that set of characters, but like it does lead to some fundamental questions of like, do you belong in this world? I feel like if this is an ultimate immigrant story, then you, with these new characters, you're sort of saying, you know, these are people who are, who are newer immigrants. They're fresher off the boat. Um, and in a way, and your characters who have been there for a while. It's almost like a crisis of identity It's like, have you lost who you were or, mm-hmm. or or can you bring them along or do you go back with them? Do you do you abandon your immigration? Like all of those you stoke all of those fires by bringing in a new golem and a, a new genie to uh, make them a- ask those questions. Uh, it, it's a it's a really fun addition to the world that I, I, I actually wasn't expecting. I was like, oh, there's another golem. Oh, no, <laughs> it's not very well made. Oh, no, <laughs> substandard golem. Substandard yeah. golem. <laughs> um, Danger. And actually, the the most uh, charming thing about that that is is Crindel, the the little girl who's basically the the golem is her protector, and he sort of hides in the basement. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's uh, I don't know how much of that was in your thought process about like the the immigrant story stuff, but I always loved that in the first book, and so it was interesting, especially uh, Ahmad is is. Um, challenged right he's really challenged because he's in a troubled place it's interesting the contrast continues right he's challenged like what am i even doing should i even be with these humans should i even be here whereas hava is more like when she finds out that there's another golem it's more like how do i help this one or or her self-loathing turns on also which Mm -hmm. is like oh no golems are killers i'm terrible and this guy is going to be terrible too and he's going to kill people so i have to kill him like all of that is is uh is rolling around in there it's it's that's the the, for me that's the the heart of the book is like how these new characters make our 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 friends uh question themselves that's yeah that's exactly what i was aiming for so hooray good. i'm glad that good, that, good. <laughs> that that seems to have yes, worked um for sure. but exactly it's that sort of part of the assimilation story too or the immigrant story is, is is where is your line of comfort and discomfort with assimilation right. and for them it's it's you know how human is too human um and for hava it's there's a part of her, like you say, that that hates what she is because there is always the possibility of violence. She she all you know every day she has to be careful and uh, you know make sure that 
she doesn't get into situations where she feels threatened or she can't be angry or or any of those because she knows that she has that propensity right. to uh, to basically hulk out and and uh, and she committed you know, a very specific act of violence against mm-hmm. Toby's father, mm-hmm. and that is in the first in book. the first book present in the first book. Read that book, people. Yep, got it, got it, got to have it in the second <laughs> if it's in the first. And uh, and and so she's got she's carrying that burden of that violence. Mm-hmm. And it, yeah, and it really is a burden. It, it like it. It scarred her. It, it it did a number on her, as it should. Um, and so she, when she meets this other golem, um, who is a completely innocent soul, but also does not seem to her to be a as as developed as is thinking as you know uh, the possibility of like caution and remorse as. Um, as she is, um, her yeah, her first response is this is this is a potential killer and I must destroy it. Um, but at the same time, this is the only other of her kind that she has ever met. Right. So there is that that um, that struggle inside her. And for Ahmad, it's am I have I got am to, I too assimilated? Am, right? <laughs> am I too yeah. assimilated? Exactly. Am I too human? Am I too have I have I lost what I was originally at what point am I just not a genie anymore? Um, and so when um, the the genia um, who in the book goes by Dima um, comes to him and said and basically says, "You're right. You have gone too far, but it's okay. You can come back." Um, then the question becomes, what is keeping him in New York? What would tie him to that life? What is what what is keeping him from just saying okay and following her back? Um, and so it becomes a very personal struggle for both of them at the same time that, you know, plot machinations are happening, um, and, and events are, are occurring in, in the world that are moving things along. And so, uh, having to match up the personal struggles alongside the, um, uh, sort of the the plot movement really um, that occupied a lot of like the last year, um, mm. but it it was worth it. I, I feel like I feel it 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 all came out okay in the end. Yeah. So <laughs> the um, one thing that you do as a as a uh, particular prose technique that I want to mention because I, I I noticed it and I think it's interesting is and I think you did this in the first book too is you will frequently refer to the golem and the genie not by their names that they go by which are again mm-hmm. they're sort of their human names that it's i think it's maybe even potentially another sort of immigrant story angle um and and Hava actually changes her name <laughs> and americanizes her name further <laughs> when she goes to school but like you but there's this you always are reminding us the golem did this the genie mm-hmm. said that and i don't I I don't know. I'm curious what your intention is. I always felt like it was a reminder that these are these are supernatural creatures. That this is that you know we call them by their names and we 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 judge them as as uh, humans, but they're not. They're not. They're 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 different. Yep. That that was a big part of the intention when I started writing the first book um, was to exactly continually remind <laughs> so you're, the character. You're stuck with it now. 
Uh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and when there's more than one, let me Ooh, tell you, no. that gets really fun. The, yeah. The, the goal of so, not that one, the other one. <laughs> the, not exactly. <laughs> That's a really long name. And I I admit that part of it did come from Doctor Who, that it's like you have a character who just goes by a name, who goes by a title. Um, And in in Doctor Who, so many characters who just go by titles um, that it becomes sort of a rolling joke. Um, But... The I, I don't have the mixing bowl of the golem and the, the way that, you know, the, the harp of Rassilon or anything like that. Imagine. But I mean, if, if only. Um, but yeah, it it was partly that there in order to remind the readers of that and also partly just sort of like the fairy tale trope mm. of the, you know, maybe a character is just sort of known as an archetype or or. Um, you know, I was setting so much of this book in real, realized, you know, stone and, and, and dirt and gritty New York that I, I didn't, it was a reminder for the reader, probably for myself too, that these are not, um, humans and you can't just treat them like humans. These are magical creatures. Don't. Exactly. Also, it's right in the title of the book. Like it's branding. That's right. It's it's the the way happened. There it is. There it is, but the the way I dealt with it was that the narrative the narrative voice um, never calls them by right. name, but, and that oh that becomes so difficult this book and <laughs> yeah. so at one point I had to I was like am I going to keep doing that like am I just going to write these convoluted sentences that were you know to keep from having to say the golem no the other one. Um, and I managed, I think, to do it. There are a couple spots where it's a little dicey, but um, if I write more, if I write a third book, oh man, I'm going to have to revisit that that decision. So yeah. I mean, I yeah, think it's effective, it, it but I see how hard the, it would be. I do think it's effective. Yeah. I'm just reminding you constantly as a reader that this is there. You know, you're you're kind of othering your characters a little bit just to keep some remove mm-hmm. between them and and society. Like it's always there underneath. Not to I could write an essay about this for my college paper. Um, <laughs> that that it's like they're they're not treated by the same rules and they're not part of the society that they, they, they or they feel separate from it in a way i think there's i think it's a, a really interesting technique but i as a as a writer i'm like oh god you gotta do that every time it's <laughs> oh yep the, the the things that you put in place that yeah. later you're like oh yeah, you're why your, your, why your did i do that self um before we move on from characters i i want to at least uh, ask you a, about sophia and her story here, she is a minor character in the first book, but here she's much more important. And I am struck by how much interesting stuff you allow her to do in terms of the things that you cut and the things that you didn't cut. Like, there's a little novelette that is the adventures of uh, heiress Sophia Winston, who turns her back on money and her mother in order to have her adventures in the Middle East and learn mm-hmm. about that culture. And she is pursuing something and she's got her Pinkerton uh, bodyguards, yep. ex Pinkerton yep. bodyguards. And, and, and she has her adventures. And, and I think it's really interesting. Like you allow her, I feel like more to do in this novel than you might have if you were just trying to get from point A to point B. And I really enjoyed it, but I, I'm curious how you how you uh, plotted out what you needed her for in this novel and also how much latitude you gave her and how much space you gave her. Because I feel like she's got 
She's got a lot to do in this book. She does. She has a lot to do. And in the end, as far as the plot goes, it's all in the service of getting the genia and yeah, bringing point her back. Point A to point B, to right? <laughs> exactly. But but I didn't want to just have her be my vehicle of fetching Dima back from uh, from Syria to New York. I I wanted to show because the other part that that she is um that she functions functions as is our window into World War 1 um because she is there when things start to go south when when the assassination happens and then all the countries start you know declaring for one side or another and she runs afoul of that of of the fact that um you know uh, all of these nations are sort of drawing inward and battening down the hatches and, you know, going into war mode. And suddenly it's a lot harder to be the, you know, the tourist on the road in the middle of Syria when, um, you know, when, when the Ottoman Empire is, is fighting, uh, you know, a, a war in the Mediterranean. Um, so she, the stuff that she's dealing with serves as... Partly as color, also as showing the stakes of of what is about to happen. Um, I have her meet uh, Lawrence of Arabia oh, yeah. at one point, oh, which I'm I has probably a spoiler to say that, but it's, it's I it was it was something that I allowed myself. But it's also another one of those things where it's like, if you are a Western traveler spending any time in the Middle East at this point in time, these are the people you're going to mm-hmm. run uh, run into. Um, and, so and she's so well-traveled at that point that, yeah. that, that how would they not know one another or of Exactly, one exactly. Uh, yeah, and, and there's there's refer um, you know Gertrude Bell has like half a scene, and there's a uh, I, I put a line in about how she was at times mistaken for Gertrude Bell because if you are a Western woman riding around on on a camel in the Middle East in in 1911, you're going to be mistaken for Gertrude Bell if you are not are not actually her, um, and so that. It, it, Again, like the how much do you put in, how much do you leave out, how much latitude do you give them? I really did want her to be a rounded character. The way she came into my first book was that she, I, I decided that um, Ahmad needed a girlfriend. This was before he'd met Hava and in, in in the plot. And here he is, this, this free spirit um, with a bit of a libido turned loose in New York. And what's he going to do? He's, he's going to go try to go out and get some. Um, and so he needed a, you know, a, a, a target basically, um, to, to, to charm, to turn his wiles on. And so I made Sophia and then I looked at Sophia and I was like, well, I can't just have you be like his girl on the side. I can't, you know, I don't, I don't want every character I feel like needs to be rounded enough to stand on their mm-hmm. own. And so I gave her more. I gave her a, like a desire for travel and a dissatisfaction with her life. And I, I was like, okay, why is this? Maybe it's not just that Ahmad is, is, is that good. Maybe it's, she is absolutely primed to like want something different than what her parents 
are offering her and it's going to on this night in this form take take the shape of this man from a foreign land who is you know everything that she has who comes from somewhere she's always dreamed about and um you know she's going to decide that she to to be swept up by him um and so that when it came time for the second book and i needed a character um, to go out and and find Dima, she was she was there. She was the one who, you know, has this reason for leaving, for going to the Middle East and being like, I want to travel, but I also need a cure. I need to rid myself of whatever it is that 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 this man who is not a man um, has done to me. And the only and I'm not going to be able to find that in America. And I don't want the life that I that was ready for me in America. So off I go, and I'm not coming back until I found it. Um, and so I wanted to, you know, it, it's like she's been wanting to see all of this stuff for so long. I wanted the reader to see what that yeah. was like for her and that it was wonderful, but also incredibly sad in that she has this giant secret of her illness and how it is that it happened. Um, and that really does eat away at her and disrupt all of her relationships with anyone. She is not just, you know, she's a stranger in a strange land to a certain extent. She's a Western tourist in the East, but she also just can't tell anyone the truth about why she is right. there. And that affects her greatly. Oh, I love that. I love that part of the book. And it does add the, I mean, it's also a reminder of where these characters came from to a certain extent, right? It gets us back there without mm -hmm. them going back there. Yeah, um, but it's a lot of fun. That's a that's I that, I love that added color palette, right? Like it's mm -hmm. I mean, li literally it's out in the desert <laughs> instead of being in uh, in Manhattan. So um, anyway, she's a lot of fun. I have a couple uh, quick quick things before we go. Quick things. Uh, first, I we should mention, and I I I know that I think I talked about this with you when we first met, but. Um, You've mentioned your husband, Kareem, a few times. Um, mm -hmm. Yes. You know, is, is it wrong for me to say you two are a little bit uh, the golem and the genie? Uh, you're not entirely <laughs> wrong. Well, you're Jewish and he is Syrian? He is. His father um, is a Sunni Muslim from Syria. His mom grew up Polish Catholic in Chicago. Um and so he is um he is of middle eastern heritage uh, he's of syrian heritage um but uh non religious and so that that becomes it, it, it's god there's all these distinctions and and you know between religion yeah. and religious cultural culture. and cultural cultural and religious cult and exactly yeah. Oh, yeah. and and so well, my wife is it, Jewish too and it's one of those things that it's like uh -huh. there's there's the cultural identity part of it and the religious part of it and from her family it is not a religious part at all it's really the cultural identification that that is yep. part of it and it is it is both but it's not both for everybody Mm -hmm. But it is cultural, historical right. immigration. That's where it all plays yeah. into um, for both of our families. Um, and so that was 
what drew me to write about this stuff in the first place was sort of this this shared history of of coming to America and and you know issues of language and culture and all of that, but coming at it you know from a Jewish perspective and 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 from an Arab American perspective, um, and from two peoples that but, are so so in modern you know news and 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 controversy and all of that, um, so controversial and pitted against each other yep. and all of that, and so to exactly. tell, the, tell this uh, essentially love story about these two mm-hmm. characters it's uh that's one of the things i loved about the first book so yeah but but yeah uh, am i am i i mean I don't know. yes i am pro- i always I am, think that I am you're much... a big a big strong hulking monster who's ready to kill <laughs> that's not sure um well after you know a year spent indoors drinking wine okay. i'm probably larger than fair. i was before but <laughs> and, and possibly angrier <laughs> I don't know. Impossibly angry. Oh, so much angrier. Um, but yeah, I, I gave her a bunch of my neuroses. Um, and uh, as for as for the genie, is I think there are ways in which their temperaments are similar. Um, the Kareem is is one of the most responsible people I've ever met. Um, so the carelessness with which Ahmad uh, lives his life sometimes is not something right. that I got from Kareem but um certainly he is the, very charming I've the, met your husband he's he, very charming he, he is he's is, he's is a charmer um so yeah I think I think Ahmad is is different more different from uh Kareem than I am from Hava okay, I'll, interesting. I'll, I'll say that I'll leave it All there right. um I wanted to ask you about names this book is uh the hidden palace I'm gonna just say it again because we're plugging the book here uh, a yep. uh what is it a tale of the golem and the genie is that right a tale of the golem uh, okay and the so genie. we yep. get we get golem and the genie in the title because you know remember that book well this is uh, this is that again uh which is good yep um I, originally it was the iron season yes so what, what what goes into the title do you suggest a title or a handful of titles and does it end up going to your editor where the publisher decides we need a different title or a better title how does how does how do you end up one picking a title because i know it changed and two um deciding that you're going to put the golem and the genie back on the back on the cover and back in the title um i i'm curious about how that process works from your so, perspective anyway you can't you know you know there, there's the perspective of whoever is in the publishing business who's designing covers and things and then there's the perspective of the writer right. who sort of i feel like it's it's got to be to a certain extent like writing uh, a story on the on on in a magazine or on the internet where like i don't get to write the headline <laughs> right and then everyone yells at you for the headline it's like it's not my fault <laughs> so yeah the iron season was the original title and I came up with the title really early on in the process. I feel, I think even just as I was starting to really think about what a sequel would entail um, was when the title came to me and it was supposed to be about, you know, getting towards the age of industry and mechanization and war and, you know, t- the first tanks and the first submarines and all all of, you know, not the first submarines, I know, you know, don't send me email, but, you know, when submarines really became a thing um, and and the fact that for the gin, iron is such a thing, it's, it's like they're kryptonite right. um, and how these would sort of tie together as um a you know thematically and and so i came up with the iron season and i loved it my agent loved it my editor liked it well enough um and so for longer than than you know one of my kids existed in in my in my head that the the title was um the iron season 
And then um, I think it was last year toward the summer. So we are in uh, we are in the height of the pandemic and I am um, uh, in the backyard in a tent uh, trying to finish the book on 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 the the final deadline that must be met or really no bad things happen um and i'm writing and writing and writing and the i get email um from my editor that her that that upper management at at harper collins does not like the title the iron season that they think it is too dour uh too grim mm-hmm. and they want something else okay fine let's let's do this so Immediately, the, the the word smithing begins, and we, me and my agent and my editor, just start throwing words at the wall sure. and seeing what sticks. And I came up with, I think, a dozen different titles, um, playing, you know, different. It, it really did feel like 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 magnet poetry on the fridge. Um, where you just just take these words and you arrange them in different ways and you add this word and take this one out and then and some of them it was like okay maybe this is descriptive of the book but is it something I I can actually say out loud like some of them were just terrible and so we we got a list and sent it off and they did not like any of them and so we went through the entire process again and it got to the day literally the day before she had my editor had to present the book at like the the seasonal meeting where where all the editors get together and uh, tell you know and and sort of pitch their books to the rest of the team um is you know here's what's coming down the tube and here's what we're excited about and this one is called and we I I don't remember who it was I think it was my agent who said palace and I came up with hidden we couldn't do the glass palace because that was a thing that actually existed um and we couldn't do there was like it, you know for each title you come up with you have to then immediately go to google right. and to amazon and to be like okay is there a title is there is this there was some other oh god there's some title that it was like as soon as i typed it in it was like no that's the cult f- book from 1978 by someone's like oh god <laughs> so um so finally uh we threw the hidden palace together and it was the sort of thing where it was like as soon as I came up with it, all three of us went, yes, there it is. Good. It, it, I was glad that I did. It wasn't something I had to wrestle myself into remembering. I, it wasn't like, I, when I say the Hidden Palace, I don't like in the back of my mind say, but really, it's the Iron Season. Like, I, I, I've made my peace with that. And I feel like the Hidden Palace does a good enough job, like, evoking the book that um, that I'm happy with it. Um, but yeah, it was... It was a real brain teaser and kind of a rough ride to get to it. Um, I I know it's a little bit late, but I do have a few other suggestions that I'd like to throw in. Um, okay. The okay. Golem in the Basement. Okay. Um, the Secret of the Home Ec Teacher. <laughs> oh, my and God. my favorite, having just invented them in the last 10 seconds, another Golem and another Genie. <laughs> <laughs> no, two Golem, or, two Genie. Or the Genea... And that other golem you could also oh, do. Yep. That because again, yep. that other how do we call him? That. He's the other one. Not that one. Another one. Another golem. Yep. Well, do you know the story about the one my dad came no. up with? 
um, he, as I was going through all of these these titles, and I'm coming, you know, trying, is like iron. No, we can't use iron. They don't like iron. Yes, no. and so my dad said, "Well, how about Ferris Ahmad's day off?" F e r r o u s. Yes, yeah. exactly, uh-huh. exactly. It. So Save yes, there, there's some Ferris. engineering humor oh. for you. Ah, so so yeah, I I kind of want to draw up a, a dummy cover and give him a copy wow. with it, but uh, we'll see. Um, I have one last question for you, and it's the question yes. you probably don't want to uh, be asked, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Which is, uh, ask so what away. now? What are now? You, are you going to do? Are you are you going <laughs> to? ever write a novel again or are you gonna be like enough of this this is ridiculous uh and if you are uh what, what are you gonna do are you are you thinking about more golem and genie action do you have another story that you're like i would really rather have written this so why don't i write this next i'm just curious now that you've been through this whole process what uh what you're thinking for uh for what's next well right now i have a number of ideas um all of which are sort of centered around the the thought that I need to reteach myself how to write something that doesn't take seven years to write. Um, and one thing that I um, that I have is all of this collected material, not just the research, but like entire cut characters and plots from writing uh, the Hidden Palace. So what can I do with those? I you know those all put together took probably a couple years all told and I don't want to just throw it to the winds so one thing that I'm thinking of is a um, a group of like linked short stories something between a short story and a novel that is a what is happening around this book and possibly after this book characters from the first book who don't get picked up there's a, a character um Matthew the little boy who at the end of the Golem and the Genie goes to Syria to live with his grandmother I he was going to be a major character in this book and I had to take him out um and but I have all of this stuff around him that I could probably write a whole book about him um and his you know what he ends up doing in Syria and then um you know maybe eventually coming back to the US um there's a cop character who is who who was part of that spine of of the plot that I took out um originally um he's uh, an Irish uh Irish cop as as most cops in in New York were Irish at the time um and who got unwittingly tangled up in all of this in an earlier draft of the book um but he got tossed to the curb and there he sits waiting for something to do um so i might end up doing something with him as well um and there there was a whole section of the book that was going to be about um silent film and the way that silent film became um very useful for new immigrants in the US um because it was part of a shared culture that they could get in on because these were silent films and anyone could go oh. watch them and understand what was going on and so they it became sort of this like Amer- this lexicon of 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 american culture that anyone could just sort of plug into and watch um and so I spent I spent months watching silent films, um, and all of that again is just there. And so you know, what do I do with all of this? And I think figuring that out 
is going to be the first step. Figuring out how to use all of this material in a way that doesn't um, become an all-consuming project for the next, you know, however many years. That becomes, you know, small stories that you add them up and they become something big and interesting. Hmm. How do I build something like that? Um, I think... Eventually, I would love to branch out into other media, into something that isn't just words on paper, um, that not, not just words on paper, but not only words on paper. Um, I would love to write a, a graphic novel. I would love to see if I'm at all good at writing for TV or, or film or other media. Um, I think, you know, I used to teach, uh, for a while. It might be fun to do again. I think I, I, I'm, I'm not taking anything off the table. Um, I am just keeping it all in mind in, you know, small pockets and seeing where it will fit into my life going forward. All right. That's a great answer. Small <laughs> pockets. <laughs> yep. Not a big project. <laughs> try try not, very hard. <laughs> not a big project. I will try very hard. Who knows? It may get the better of me. Some something. You never know. Get. You never know. Yep. All right. Um, the Hidden Palace: A Tale of the Golem and the Genie. Uh, June eighth. Bookstores everywhere. If you haven't read the Golem and the Genie, I've heard that you can still read this and it will make sense. But you should. It's a really good book, and then you can roll <laughs> right into this one. And you get two good books back to back. So check it out. That's my uh, my last plug of uh, of this episode. Helene, thank you so much for spending time with me, breaking down your last eight years and going into uh. all sorts of dark places and getting <laughs> back into the light. This is therapy. No, I thank you so much for having me on, and um, yeah, and just giving me this opportunity. And and thank you for for saying yes to getting a sandwich all those years. That's ago. right. We'll have to do that again someday. Yep. What, what will that be like to get a sandwich <laughs> again? Uh, well, thank you to everybody out there for listening to this episode of The Incomparable. Pick up the book, and uh, we will see you next time. <laughs>